Welcome to the Spring Break edition of the USC Christian Challenge podcast. Made by students and staff at the University of Southern California, we seek to connect and equip students to know Jesus, live lives honoring to Him, and make Him known to their communities. You can learn more about us at uscchristianchallenge.com and connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at USC Challenge. Without further ado, here is part two of our Spring Break special, Total Forgiveness. All right. Good evening, everyone. So in the um, talk this morning, basically what we were covering was why total forgiveness is so important, why it comes from the heart of God, why it's so critical that we forgive. So what I want to do now tonight is get kind of more in the trenches, the nitty gritty of how to forgive. So if this morning was the motivation part, Tonight is the work part, so I think it's going to be exciting, but I'll warn you, this is, this is work. Forgiveness is just a lot of work. Uh, you might get fired up about the idea, and it might sound just great, but there's just a tremendous amount of work over time, and it, it's not a quick thing, like I said this morning. It takes time, and once you thought you have forgiven, then you'll surprise yourself and realize, oh, I've got some more work to do on this. So in a perfect world, those who do us wrong would see what they have done to us. They would feel remorse for the pain and the damage that they have caused us. And then, having seen that and felt that, they would immediately begin to do everything they could to repair the damage, and then they would ask us to forgive them. And then, of course, we would magnanimously forgive them and begin the process of rebuilding the trust that's been damaged by whatever the wrong was. How often does that happen? Not too often. Every once in a while, and it's great when it does. That's plan A on forgiveness. But this is not a perfect world, and so that forgiveness path is pretty rare. In reality, most of the wrong that's done to us is done by individuals who don't think they've done anything wrong and who are maybe even offended by the suggestion that they've done something wrong. So in fact, in my experience, most people that we have to forgive feel they have a justifiable excuse for doing whatever they did. And they would be indignant at the thought that we are working really hard to forgive them. That would offend them. They feel no remorse, and they will most likely never ask for our forgiveness, never offer a confession. They should, of course, but they don't. So if we're ever going to be freed from the bitterness of caring what they've done to us into the future, bitterness over the wrong that's done to us, if we're ever going to forgive them, it's going to require what we're talking about, which is total forgiveness. Now, this morning I contrasted total forgiveness to total justice. And now I want to start out by contrasting total forgiveness with reconciled forgiveness. It's important, I think, to understand the difference between these two. Total forgiveness requires action from only one side. The two sides being you, the person that's been wronged, and them, the person that's done the wrong. Total forgiveness doesn't require their cooperation at all. They don't even have to be aware of it in order for you to forgive them. You, all by yourself, with God's help, can completely and totally forgive someone. 
without their involvement, without their knowledge, without their confession at all. That's total forgiveness. That is different than reconciled forgiveness. Reconciliation requires both sides to agree. That's what the word reconcile implies. Uh, For example, your checking account. If you have a checking account, and this is another big if, if you ever reconcile it, it requires both you and the bank to agree on the amount of money that you have in your checking account. So the way you reconcile is you compare your records with the bank's records and you make adjustments to the entries until they agree. And once they agree, that account is reconciled. So it requires both you and the bank to agree. Without an agreement, there cannot be an ongoing banking relationship. For example, if you keep on insisting that you have more money in the bank than they think you have in the bank, what are they going to do? They're going to close your account as you continue to overdraft. You know, they're, they're going to end the banking relationship. And it's the same in personal relationships. If wrong is done, but it's never admitted to, then trust eventually erodes to the point where the relationship gets so damaged that there's not enough trust for the relationship to go on. This is why reconciled forgiveness is something that we need to pursue. And it's so important in order for relationships to grow and to be built. But if people will never admit to any wrong they've done as they continue to hurt us, we can't repair that relationship, but we can forgive that individual. And that's what we're talking about in these these three talks. Because in my experience, this is the harder kind of forgiveness. Reconciled forgiveness can get tricky and it's got some challenges, but as long as there's a conversation and there's a, an understanding on both sides that, hey, we, we've both got some things we got to clear up, then there can be a back and forth. Then there can be a relationship that grows. But most often, with the people that really, really hurt us the most, there's none of that. And total forgiveness is not dependent on anything from them. So in these couple of days, we're just talking about this one-sided forgiveness. So what I want to do tonight is describe for you or to give you the, what I'm calling the three dimensions of what total forgiveness looks like. It takes specific action in these three areas, these three dimensions. There's some work that you need to do in private, on the inside of your own heart and head. There's some work that you can and need to do in public in relationship to the wrong that's been done. And there's some work that you need to do before God. So these are the three dimensions. In private, in public, and before God. And we'll go through these. Now, for each dimension, I've chosen one behavior, one concrete step or action that you can take that will help you begin to make progress in this area. Now, this is not everything that you can and should do when it comes to forgiveness. Total forgiveness requires more than just three activities. But each of these actions what I found personally is that they represent the kind of movement that really helps get us going and gets our heart back on track. What I've discovered is when I am trying to forgive, my heart is, especially if I've really been hurt, really been wronged, my heart just is so resistant. And many times I can't wait for my heart to come on board. I just have to start acting. I just have to start doing one of these actions. And as I start doing these actions, then with God's help, my heart begins to move. If you wait for your heart to get involved, you're going to be waiting a long time, especially if you're really deeply wrong or hurt. 
So let's look at the first dimension, privately. Privately, here's the record that I found to be very helpful. I keep no record of wrongs. I keep no record of wrongs. This is in the internal dimension. Nobody knows about this except for me and God. This is what goes on inside of our head. Now, I get this action item from the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. And you're probably aware that in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, we're given a list of practical activities or actions of love. And one of those actions simply says, love keeps no record of wrongs. And this is really helpful when it comes to forgiveness. So this morning, we talked about that whenever we are wronged, our natural response is to pursue justice. And so in a sense, we become kind of like the prosecuting attorney in the case against the person who's done us wrong. And again, we are right to feel strongly about the fact that this wrong demands justice. But we are wrong to think that we are the only ones that care about justice in this matter. God cares and will one day bring justice and he will right every wrong. But as we talked about this morning, that is not God's top goal right now. God's top goal is to restore our relationship with him, to offer forgiveness. And that's why forgiveness needs to be our top goal. So we don't get in the way of his primary agenda as we prosecute our case. Now, forgiveness is the decision basically to turn the case over to God. Practically, we are off the case. We are no longer the prosecuting attorney. We're willing to wait for however and whenever God decides justice to be done because we really want this person to receive the forgiveness that we've received. So we're off the case. What that means practically is that we turn over the records of the case that we are building against this person. You know, whenever one attorney is replaced by another attorney, the first thing that happens is all of the case files are turned over to the new attorney. And the reason is obvious. The previous attorney no longer has any use for the files because, well, they're off the case. There's no reason for them to keep the files because they're not going to trial. They're not going to have to present an argument before the judge or before the jury. So they don't need the files anymore. Justice in this matter is no longer their job. That's what forgiveness means practically. Justice in this matter is no longer your job. You're off the case. You're not the attorney. If you're still in possession of the records of the wrongs that they have done to you, what that means practically is you have not totally forgiven. You're still working on the case in your mind. Now, what does this mean to turn the records over? The records of the wrong, of course, are not visible files. So we can't just put them in a box, stick them on a dolly, and roll them into another room and lock the door and be done with it. The records exist in our minds. And because it was wrong done to us, there's emotions that are attached to those records. So how do we turn these over? There's two steps that I would recommend that I found to be helpful in practically turning these records over and keeping no record of wrong towards people who have wronged us. The first step, and this was surprising to me, I learned this in the Total Forgiveness book that I mentioned that Neil had recommended to my wife and I about 20 years ago. The first step is to be honest about what they did. Now that almost sounds like you're going backwards. 
like you're opening the case files back up again to make sure that they're accurate. That may sound counterintuitive when it comes to forgiving or keeping no record of wrongs. But to keep, or, but to no longer rather, keep a, a record implies that there was one in the first place. For example, in January this next year, I'm going to throw away or get rid of, shred my 2013 financial records. The reason is because after seven years, I'm not going to be audited, and so I don't need them. Now, they are real records, but after that number of years, I don't need them anymore. The point is this. You can't stop keeping or get rid of something that never existed in reality. So in order to stop keeping the record of wrongs done to you, you first need to be honest about the wrong that has been done to you. This is the mistake I made a lot early on, is I would kind of falsify the records. I would pretend that nah, it really wasn't wrong. And that made them impossible for me to turn over to God because they weren't accurate. You know, you do have a case against the people that have wronged you. It was wrong. It did hurt. They did do damage. But if we try to get rid of the records by falsifying them, they won't go away. There's three common ways. We'll just list them up here real quickly that we, we tend to falsify the records of the wrong that people have done to us. First of all, we minimize the wrong. You know, we act like nothing really affects us. It's no big deal. You know, if you ask someone for forgiveness, what's the most common response you get? Oh, no big deal. No worries. And that's just a common way of dealing with this. Why? Well, maybe it wasn't a big deal, but often it's because we just don't want to be honest and risk the feelings that go along with that. But if we diminish the wrong that was done, it makes it impossible for us to truly, totally forgive because we haven't been truly and totally honest about what we're forgiving. So we tend to minimize the wrong. Second thing we do is we tend to excuse their wrong. You know, they were having a bad day. You know, they had a rough childhood, all of which may be true and may have contributed. But we do this because it takes the sting out of what they did. If we can find a mitigating reason for why they did or said what they did, then it, it isn't as hard to experience that it, as it is if they just simply were wrong and mean and lied about us. That hurts. So we tend to excuse their wrong. But excuses don't make what they did or what they said any less bad. The third thing we do is we tend to blame ourselves. And this, is, I think, is one of the most common things that we do. You know, if I'd been a better person, they wouldn't have done that. You know, really, I kind of asked for it. It's my fault. You know, even if we did have a part in what they did, still doesn't make what they did right. So when we falsify the records of the wrong done to us, it may help us feel a little better, but it corrupts the files and makes them impossible then to fully turn over to God. God will not take falsified records. He does not deal in lies. So first, what we often need to do is to clean up the records before we turn them over. Stop denying what they did, remove the excuses, and stop blaming ourselves for the choices they made. This is a very important step. It's a hard step because it requires 
really thinking and getting clear about what they did and what was wrong about what they did. So be honest about what they did. This is the first step in keeping no record of wrongs. The second step then is we turn over the files by when we stop rehearsing the case. This is practically what it means to keep no record of wrongs. A rehearsal, of course, is done to prepare for the real event. You know, so the band got here early this morning. They got up here and they started rehearsing. The reason they did it is because everyone was going to be here in about 30 minutes and they hadn't led worship in a while and so they wanted to knock the cobwebs out and get ready for the real thing. Now, we do the same kind of thing when it comes to prosecuting our case against other people. The event that we rehearse, of course, is the moment when we can say our piece, kind of the trial moment, the moment when the evidence comes to light and they're convicted and they're sentenced and justice is done. And the thought of that moment is pretty glorious to us, but it hasn't come yet and it doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon. So what we do is we keep rehearsing and hope that one day we'll have our chance to say our piece. So we conduct pretty detailed and vivid rehearsals in our mind about what we would say, given the chance to them, how we would counter what, we, what they might say, because we, we think of what we would say, and then we have these imaginary arguments, and then they might say this back, and then I would counter with this, and then they would say this back, and then I would, I thought of this line for two months, I would zing them with this line. And we just, we really are able to rehearse these things. We spend a great deal of time doing this. I mean, we lay awake at night rehearsing. I mean, I do. Sometimes. We rehearse when we drive. Sometimes I've, I found myself driving, and I'm just getting all emotional and all upset, and I realize, you know what? I've been the prosecuting attorney for the last 10 minutes, thinking about this person and what I would say to them and how I might counter their arguments to really make the point. I've just been rehearsing. I've actually been in meetings on the outside and rehearsing on the inside. I mean, we just, we can do this all the time. I think actually we would be shocked if we knew the total amount of time that we spend rehearsing what we would say to counter the wrong that someone has done to us. So what, what should we do with this? How do we stop rehearsing? Do we just forgive and forget? Well, actually, yes but it's a little harder than those two words. The idea of equating forgiving with forgetting comes from Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. Here's what it says. God says, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So that's God. But how can we forget? I mean, we're not, we're not just the prosecuting attorney on the case that's just been hired. We are actually also the victims on the case. How can we possibly forget, especially if it's really deep stuff? How can we forget the wrong that they've done to us? I mean, it is the way we're wired. It's impossible for us to forget meaningful events in our life, both positive events and negative events. We are not wired just to forget these things. Now, trauma has been known to cause amnesia, but no one ever says that's a good thing. That kind of forgetting is not what we're after. Healing often begins with a detailed recollection of what happens, what has happened to us, rather. Now, God knows everything. 
So he doesn't technically forget. When he says, I will remember their sins no more, what he's saying is, I'm not going to bring this up anymore. This is not going to be a factor in our relationship. I am not going to relate to you based on the sin that I have forgiven three years ago, no matter how bad it was. You may want to bring it up in your mind, but I'm not going to bring it up. If you want to torture yourself, that's your loss. But God says, I, I'm, it's, not, it's not between us anymore. It's not that, now what did you do three years ago? I can't remember that. It's not that. It's this is not going to be between us. I'm not going to bring this up. Now, we can't forget the wrong that's done to us, but we can stop mentally accessing and using the files of the wrong that's been done to us. We actually can stop rehearsing what we would say to those who have wronged us if we were to ever get our day in court. Now, this is very, very hard to do. I, I said at the beginning, forgiveness is a lot of work. And if you've tried to do this, you have encountered a principle first stated by Aristotle. He's the one that said, nature abhors a vacuum. Now, Aristotle, of course, was applying, referring to the field of physics, but it also applies to the human heart. This is something that's been very helpful for me to learn. I have spent so much of my Christian life trying to stop doing certain things or thinking certain things. And I'm not saying you shouldn't, but I've missed the fact that the way the heart works is it can't, you can't just say no to something without saying yes to something else. So the process of growth is not only a no, but it's also a yes. And so you have to figure out what is the yes that needs to displace the no, I'm not going to rehearse this case anymore. No, I'm not going to keep this record of wrong. We can't just empty our heart of all the records of wrongs that have been stored and rehearsed over the years. They have to be displaced by actions that will displace the memories. This is why we cannot forgive one-dimensionally. We can't just forgive internally. You know, like reality, total forgiveness has these three dimensions. So this is the first dimension. We have to decide that we are going to stop keeping a record of the wrongs. We're going to stop rehearsing the case. The second dimension then aids the first dimension. Publicly, I give good gifts. Publicly, I give good gifts. So privately, I keep no record of wrongs. That's the decision making my heart. Publicly, then, I give good gifts. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus has a lot to say about forgiveness. And he packs a lot of practical advice in just a handful of verses in Luke chapter 6. He begins his statements on forgiveness this way in Luke 6, 27 to 28. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. So what you'll notice is, is this is the action that you use to displace the negative stuff that you're struggling with. This is how you displace the wrong. So internally, we choose to love our enemies. That's a decision on the inside. But love is not just an internal matter. It's not just an emotion. It's not just a thought. Jesus clarifies this by saying, and so what that means is you actually do good to those 
who hate you. So to totally forgive, we must get out of our head and actually practically do good to those who have done us wrong. Now, Jesus refers to two words here to describe those who have done us wrong. He uses the word enemy, and he uses the word hate. Now, those are very strong words, very extreme-sounding words. But remember, forgiveness is honest about what's been done. And hate an enemy is a good description when someone wrongs us. The word hate means to oppose. The word enemy means to act with hostility. So hate is the internal stance that leads someone to enemy behavior. Hate is inside. Enemy is external. It's the action part. These words, I think, accurately describe what occurs when someone wrongs us. First, they hate us. Now, they may not say this, but they, they oppose us for some reason. Maybe we didn't do what they want us to do. Or maybe we're just simply in the way of what they want to do. But for whatever reason, they line up against us in their hearts. And then they act. They do something against us. They, they act as our enemy. They, they bring an act of hostility. Could be words, could be actions, could be both. What happens when someone opposes us and then acts on that opposition? We respond usually by repeating the cycle. I mean, the way it works with us, if you're going to oppose me, I'm going to oppose you. We tend to respond in kind. And so this cycle just keeps going around and around and around. Actually, it's a three-dimensional. It's not just a circle two-dimensionally goes around. It's a spiral that goes down. They oppose us, do something to hurt us. We oppose them, do something to hurt them. So then they oppose us, do something to hurt us. We do something worse. And this thing just keeps going down. This is natural. This is the cycle. This is what Jesus is talking about. Love, though, is the opposite of hate. Love and hate are the polar opposites. Forgiveness is what breaks the spiral by loving our enemies. As I said, love and hate are opposites. Hate does harm, but love does what? Good. So hate is the internal. Love is the counter of the internal of hate. Hate does enemy action. Love does good. It actually gives good gifts to the person. Now, if you're going to love your enemies, realize that you're not going to feel the emotion of love towards your enemies, especially initially. You will have to decide in your heart to love and not hate. You're going to have to decide, this is my position, my stance. See, hate is a, a stance towards a person. Love is the opposite stance. Hate is the stance that gets an opposition. Love is the stance that looks and says, how can I help? I'm not opposed to you. I want to help you. It's a very different stance. That's an internal decision. You'll have to decide in your heart what your stance is going to be. Then you will need to act on that. You will need to do good. And then you'll need to love again. 
And then you'll need to act again. And you'll need to do this cycle on the love, do good side over and over again. This cycle is going to have to be repeated over and over again. The reason it has to be repeated is because you've probably dug a fairly deep hole on the hate enemy side of things. And you, there's no elevator that goes immediately up to the top of where it started. In a sense, you've got to kind of gradually dig your heart back out of this hole of the wrong that's been done for you. Because you've probably dug a pretty deep hole. Now, God will help you. So it's not an elevator, but it is faster than the hole is dug. God can accelerate this in your heart. He'll help you on the love, do good side. But don't expect it to occur quickly. Don't expect to do a month of good deeds, and then all of a sudden, your heart's free on this matter. As I said, this is work. This is in the trenches. You may be so deep into the hate, enemy side of things that it's going to be hard for you to even imagine what good will look like. And how you, what you might even have a hard time thinking of what is one possible good thing that you could do to someone who's hurt you so deeply. This is what I've discovered. Even when I decided, okay, I'm going to treat my enemies with love. And then I thought, okay, so what is the good I can do? And I would sit there and I think, I can't think of anything. You know why? Because I really don't want to do anything. I don't want to do good. So let me suggest to you two types of good gifts that you could give to your enemies. And again, there's more gifts than this. There's all kinds of gifts. But these are two good gifts that I found to be helpful. The first gift is a reputation they did not earn. A reputation they did not earn. Now, you may not think of this as a gift. What this means practically is you do not say anything bad about them to anybody else. That is so hard. Often, when we can't get our day in court on this matter, we will do the next best thing. We will attack them in the court of public opinion. And we will assemble our own jury, our friends, and we will try our case before them. We will tell other people what they have done and how wrong it is. And everyone who is hearing this knows what is being asked of them, and that is to jump on the bandwagon of how awful this person is. And we damage their reputation. But love does the opposite. We make the choice to not spread the news to anyone of what they've done. Now, there are some exceptions that should be obvious, but let me just state them. If it's a crime, it should be reported. If it's abuse, physical abuse, it needs to be dealt with and reported. This should not be kept to yourself. You go to the proper authorities. If you need help in processing and dealing with the damage that they've done, it is appropriate to talk to a counselor or a trusted friend to help you process this. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about when you try to find anyone who's willing to listen to your side of the story and you trash them because of the wrong they've done to you in front of other people. We do not do that. If we are going to love our enemies, 
we give them a reputation that they really don't deserve. We're off the case. And why do we do this? Because God has given us a reputation we don't deserve. Years ago, in this, there was a season where a lot of wrong was done to me. And I, I remember at one point I was falsely accused of something. And the accusation was kind of being spread around to a number of people. And I got a hold of the written form of the accusation, and I read through it, and it was just a bunch of lies. And I read through this thing, and the further I read, the madder I got. I got so upset, I couldn't think. So I went for a walk just to try to clear my mind. And I was probably two blocks into my walk, and my mind was, I mean, I was prosecuting my case. I was arguing and countering everything that was said against me that was, was a lie. And what was so frustrating to me was that they, they had gotten it wrong. I mean, everything they said about me was just a lie. It was stuff either I'd never said or stuff that I said, but they twisted in such a way to mean something I never meant. And I, it was, I, and I knew I couldn't get my day in court. I, I couldn't explain how wrong this was. And I was, I was so frustrated. And I cried out to God. I didn't yell this, but in my heart I said, God, how could you let them get it, get it so wrong about me? And the thought came to my heart in that moment, and this was God. God says, aren't you glad they didn't get it right? And what that meant was God was saying, okay, yeah, they were wrong about this, this, and this. But if they knew everything about you, if they had the entire record of everything Bevan has done and everything Bevan has thought, they would have some serious dirt on you. And what God said to me is you don't even deserve the reputation that they're giving you. You, you don't deserve this reputation at all. You are living on my mercy and my kindness. Now, I'm not living a double life. I'm not saying I got this secret, horrible, awful life. But if every thought I've ever had and every word I've ever said and every deed I've ever done was seen, trust me, I would not be impressive at all. And I have a sneaking suspicion, neither would you. Because of God's love, because of his mercy, because he has loved me when I have stood in opposition to him and been his enemy in my thoughts and in my deeds and in my actions. Because of God's love, we have a reputation we don't deserve. So this is why we decide to stop talking badly about our enemies in public. In that moment, it was, it was almost as if God was saying, because I was getting ready to launch my public campaign against these people. And God said, be very, very careful. You really don't want me going public against you. So don't go public against them. Give them a reputation they didn't earn. Because we're living on a reputation we really haven't earned. The second good gift that you can give is give them help that they don't deserve. 
as it says, do good to those who hate you. That is not normal. That's not naturally what we do. This is why Jesus says, he goes on verse 32 through 33 of Luke 6, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. I think this is the idea that's being presented here. There is this giant barrier between love and hate. You take these two cycles, and they never cross lines. Love, if someone loves you, the natural thing is for you to do good to them. If someone hates you, the natural thing is you do bad to them. So how we treat people is naturally dependent on how they treat us. Now, God doesn't give out extra credit for two-sided love. We all do that. For most of us, love is simply a deal. You be nice to me, I'll be nice to you. You give me a gift, I'll give you a gift. What's worthy, worthy of notice, what's worthy of extra credit is one-sided love. Where you know, you've done me wrong, I'm going to do you good. You've hurt me, I'm going to help you. Forgiving actions are independent of what they've done. That is hard. If it was easy, everyone would be doing it. So what forgiveness does is it climbs over this wall, this natural wall that exists between love and hate. And it says, you know what? I'm going to do good to those who have done me bad. I'm going to do good. This, this is so, this is such an important step to take. Years ago, I was struggling to forgive someone who had done damage to me. And I'd tried, I'd, I'd done these things that we talked about up to this point. I'd stopped rehearsing as best I could, but my heart was still just really twisted on the inside. And then I, I heard about a financial need this person had. And the last, I mean, my first thought was, good. Finally, God is bringing justice on their life. And then I thought of this, and I think the Holy Spirit said in my heart, you need to help out. And you know what my response was? No! Why would I help? And the answer came, because you are to love your enemies. That's the last thing I want to do is help them. They didn't deserve it. Now, it was only a, a few hundred dollars that they needed, but I just could not climb over this wall in my heart until I gave them help, money that they did not deserve. Now, I figured out a way to do it anonymously because I knew if I, if it, I was aware of it, somehow it would get all twisted up. So I did it anonymously. And they, to this day, have no idea that I helped them with that need. I mean, this is someone that trashed me to all kinds of people. They had no idea. But God did, and I did. And in that moment, the wall in my heart was lowered. This is a powerful thing. Find a way 
to help those who have done you wrong, practically to help them. If there's no idea, ask God, God, can you show me a way that I can practically help them? And trust me, there will be a way for you to help them, to give a good gift. So that's privately, publicly. Now the last dimension, before God. Before God, I pray for their blessing. Now, I'm just telling you, all of these things are like walking on your hands all day. It's very unnatural. You've spent your whole life doing the opposite. But this is what forgiveness, this is the work of forgiveness. I pray for their blessing. Jesus said this again, Luke 6, 28. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. You know, it's one thing to stop rehearsing the wrong in your heart, to not attack their reputation in public, and to occasionally give them some help that they don't deserve. But it is really hard to regularly ask God to bless their lives. To bless their lives. You're not just praying for them. You're not just saying, God, help so-and-so. You're actually saying, God, would you bless my enemy? That's hard. The reason that's hard is because if God actually blesses your enemy, it's going to send them the entirely wrong message that you're trying to send them. They need to see the wrong that they've done to you. And if they're blessed, you know what that means? Is in some way their life is going to get better. And they're going to come to the conclusion that they're doing great. When they're not, they're doing wrong to you. I mean, just, just try this, and you'll, you'll see what I mean. It's, what I've discovered is when I started doing this, <laughs> my early blessing, my enemies' prayers were pretty, pretty bizarre. I kept loading up my blessing prayers with curses. I mean, I just, I couldn't, it's just like, I don't think that was a blessing. I think I actually just cursed them because that's what my heart was. I mean, I, I, this is for an example. Early on, I would say, Father, I just pray that you'd bring them to their knees so that they can repent, which will allow you to bless them. So I'd get to the blessing, but after you hammer them. It's like, I, I, don't, I don't think that's really what Jesus had in mind when he said, bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. So it took me a long time, and it's still hard to actually pray. God, would you, would you bless them? And again, do you know why I can get to this point? It's because God's blessed me more than I deserve. I mean, way more than I deserved. And so that's been helpful. I say, God, I, please bless them. I mean, you've blessed me. I don't deserve it. So would you be kind to them? Would you help them? Would you bless them? Now, again, this is not just one prayer. This is a regular prayer. And I'll, I'll tell you, it will start as just a pure discipline. You will not want to do this. But when we pray, God begins to do miracles in our hearts. If you do this over time, it will switch you from wanting to hear bad news about them to wanting to hear good news. And then two years later, you'll be back to wanting to hear bad news again, and you'll have to get back into doing more 
blessing prayers. You know, at one point in my life, I had to make a list of all of my enemies that I needed to pray for. The list was long. And the way I was doing prayer at that time, I had different themes on different days of the week. And the way it worked out was Saturday was, well, I just called it enemy day. <laughs> That's what I prayed. Saturday was enemy day. And I just went through the list of those who had done me wrong. And I prayed that God would bless them. And I'll be honest, I dreaded enemy day. But what I discovered over time was Saturday was often my best day of prayer. Not going into it, but coming out of it. You see, because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies to him, he loved us. And when we do good to those who have done wrong to us, when we pray for those who have hurt us, when we let go of the case of those who have wronged us, we are doing what our Heavenly Father has done through His Son to us. And God blesses that. He is pleased by that. So Luke 6, 27-28 again, But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. I leave you with this challenge. Actually, do this. Don't just read this and feel something. Do every one of these things. There's tremendous power in what Jesus tells us to do here. Let's pray. Father, we um, are so grateful for your forgiveness. And we admit that we are so stingy to offer what we have been so graciously given. I pray that you would help us in the doing of these things. Help us to stop rehearsing the case that we have against people. To turn these files over to you. Pray that you would help us to do good to those who have done wrong to us. And I pray that you'd help us to pray, honestly pray, for good and for blessing from you to flow into the lives of those who have done us wrong. Help us, we pray. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This has been Bevan giving his second message in a series called Total Forgiveness at the 2021 Spring Break Retreat. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to us and listen to more on your favorite podcast platform, as well as leave us a rating and review on iTunes because it helps us to reach other people with these resources. Once again, you can learn more about us at uscchristianchallenge.com or find us on social media at USC Challenge.